Thank you, Brother Travis. Matthew chapter 5 tonight. Matthew chapter number 5. And while you're turning, I want to mention a couple things that, that uh, stood out. Brother Cherry made mention of the Matthew's testimony and how when we assembled those cards, when we did those uh, flyers that were going to be sent out, uh, we had a number of people volunteer to come in and count those and stack those. And, and then one of the things we've done is we would pray over those. And, uh, and I believe that uh, they're here as a direct answer to prayer. And uh, I think that's happened a few times. And I think about the Wainicks still, and, and that we did the same thing with the music cards that went out, divided them and prayed over those, and praying that God would bring people that, that He's uh, looking for and, and wanting to do a work in their life, and, and people who recognize we need the church, and the church needs them. Um, you know, you've heard the, the saying, two heads are better than one. Well, you get 200 of them together who have the mind of Christ, and, and we can accomplish a lot more for the sake of the gospel and bring glory to God, and so very grateful for that. And we launched the Outreach Bingo today, and just wanted to see uh, how we're doing so far. Anyone complete a, what's it, a square? Is that what it's called? Um, and um, complete a, um, what are we calling these, a square? A what? A space, okay. And um, anyone complete a space as of yet? Anyone get get a space? Priscilla and Gretchen, uh, they've got theirs. Who else? Ryan and Sophia and good. And uh, Miss Ella, wonderful. Miss Charlotte, good. And uh, Kelsey and and Sophia. Have we launched this with the adults yet? <laughs> and uh, over here as well. Wonderful. That's super. Now make sure you're, you're, if you win something here, your parents can't partake of this. And and uh, but that's great. That's good. And I know we've we've launched it with the children as well. And so uh, the tracks we saw that they were getting gone, and that's a good sign. We get those gone. We'll just keep restocking those, replenishing those. We're in Matthew chapter number five. We had a good good service this morning. Number of guests, and um, I'm, I'm enjoying going through. The series in the morning that we can expect God to do more, but He wants to do it right now, and just different things that contribute to that, and um, and also going through this series at night. I, I I don't like the technicality part of some of this, but but I hope it's a help and just encouraging your faith and strengthening your faith in God's Word. And um, with that in mind. Captain Labee, I think he mentioned some Bibles that we may have had for available. And then I've got another one here um, that if someone would be interested, this is a Thomas Nelson. It's a giant print thin line. Now there's a conundrum right there. <laughs> giant print thin line. And um, I think I've fallen in that category before. Um, more giant, trying to be thin. But uh, this is a beautiful Bible. It's a premium goatskin leather. But it does have a larger print. But it's just without it being as bulky. And uh, it's just a beautiful Bible. One of the things I love about new Bibles is the smell. And they just smell good. If they could ever make that into a cologne, I think I would wear that and someone says well they do it's called leather but it's not a leather bible and on the cologne bottle so it's not the same but this is a beautiful bible if someone would be interested um captain let you take this and and uh, make that available it's it we, I, I look for 
certain deals when they are marked down, I try to get them when they're on sale. And this one is on sale and it's $110. And that's really a great price with the amount of leather. The goat skin leather is just a beautiful, it's very soft and it smells good, but it looks great, easy, easy on the eyes and just great paper, great ink and all those factors I look at and just want to make those available. Matthew chapter 5 tonight, we're going to look at Jesus and his Bible. You know he had a Bible? And if we can see what his attitude was towards his Bible, it should help us with our attitude towards our Bible. In Matthew chapter number 5, let's stand together and we'll look at verse 17 and 18. Jesus said in verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That is very important, and I hope we'll see the significance of that here tonight. Verse 18, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Again tonight, we're going to look at Jesus and his Bible. Thank you. Please be seated. We're looking at this series on how do we know for sure that the Bible's God's Word. And again, I know most have, it's been settled in your heart long time ago and but it's good for us to review some reasons, some, some significance as to the, the certainty that we can have concerning the Bible. And I want us to focus on Matthew 5, 17 and 18 as Jesus is talking about the Word of God. I think it will help us know what our attitude should be toward the Bible. What did Jesus think about the Bible? What weight did Jesus give the Bible? Did Jesus use the Bible? Did Jesus teach the Bible? Did Jesus know the Bible? Did he quote the Bible? And looking at the New Testament, we see what Jesus' attitude was towards the Bible. And we understand he had the Old Testament, and we see what he did with the Old Testament, how he handled it, can help us know how we too can treat the Bible. And certainly, we should have the same attitude that Christ had. If we believe that Jesus was God, the Son was God in human flesh, and then certainly that would be a very authoritative reason for us to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. If Jesus accepted the Bible as Scripture, if He accepted the Bible as infallible Word of God, then we believe that Jesus being the Son of God, God in flesh, and He treated and held the Bible with the regard and the esteem, with the weight that He did, then you and I should be able to agree with Jesus in this regard. I want you to see two things about Jesus uh, in this matter of his Bible. Number one tonight, Jesus affirmed the infallibility of Scripture. He affirmed the infallibility of Scripture. Now one of the things that, that Jesus uh, made reference to, we see in verse 17, he made reference to the law or the prophets. And so he's referred to the law and the prophets, the law of the prophets. This is Jesus' way of referring to the Old Testament. He says he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. 
Rather, he said, I came to fulfill. The word fulfill is the same word that we've looked at before. and we were, we were reminded about that Jesus came to fulfill the intention of the Old Testament. That is to bring it to its intended completion. The fulfillment Jesus has in mind here is in relation to the Old Testament is not simply to have external conformity to its commands and to its laws, but rather to have a heart that is alive to God. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6 says, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. And Jesus is, is looking to fill up, to complete that which the Bible, the Old Testament, had spoken of. And we learned last week that the Old Testament had 39 books of the Old Testament, the same, the very same 39 books that we have. So the Bible that Jesus had was the same Old Testament that we have today. In Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18 here, he's affirming the infallibility of the scripture. And one of the things he says about it in verse 18 is, not one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. He's saying, what he's saying and referring to here is a Hebrew alphabet. Not even the slightest stroke of the pen. Not a jot or a tittle will pass away from the law until all of it be fulfilled. He said, I came not to destroy the Old Testament, to put it aside, but I came to fulfill it. He says, not even a jot or tittle, not even that stroke of a pen. He's, it's like saying, it's like comparing the Hebrew alphabet, comparing it to the English language. It'd be like us saying, not the crossing of the letter T or the dotting of the letter I. None of those smallest details would ever be dropped from the law until it's all fulfilled. He's saying that this is how complete, this is how accurate the word of God is. Not even the crossing of a T or the dotting of an I is insignificant. But all of it's going to be kept. And then he states that scripture is eternal and then he goes on to talk about the measurement of righteousness in the kingdom of heaven. Of course, he meant by that that the only way this could be kept is not an outward keeping. These uh, Pharisees, they only went through the motions of keeping the law, but Jesus would fulfill not only the letter of the law, but also the spirit of the law. So that you and I, through Jesus, through the fulfilling of the law could exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. How? It was not by what we do, but by accepting Jesus. And again, he says, I came to fulfill the law. And that is, he came to live a perfect life and die as the word of God was foretelling, 
prophesying in the Old Testament, the spotless Lamb of God. He would come, fulfill the law, and after He fulfills the law, He goes to the cross, die for our sins and fulfilling the law. He would be buried and rise again, fulfilling the law. So Jesus here, He's affirming the infallibility of Scripture, and He says that He will fulfill it, and none of it will pass away. And, and He gives this double negative. He uses the strongest possible language when he says in no wise shall this pass from the law till all be fulfilled double negative no way and is it even possible that this is going to fall away and he says I didn't come to put it aside I came to fill it up why because it's the word of God the old testament that he had He's in, he's in the he's part of the process of the New Testament coming along, but he's saying that none of this, none of this is going to pass away. It is just as authoritative today and when Jesus is day, and it's just as authoritative today in our day. So he affirmed the authority of the scripture. His Bible that he had is the same Old Testament that we have. But number two, Jesus acknowledged the authority of the scripture. He affirmed the infallibility of scripture, but he also acknowledged the authority of the scripture. Now, in three, three different phrases Jesus would use. He would use the phrase, search the scriptures. He would use the phrase, it is written. He would use the phrase, have ye not read? And he would use these phrases when talking to his disciples, when talking to the scribes and Pharisees, those who were antagonistic against him, his enemies, his persecutors. Search the scriptures. It is written, have ye not read? Now, Jesus acknowledged the authority of scripture when settling questions about life. In John chapter 5 and verse 39, if you want to turn over to there, in John 5 and verse 39, we're going to look at a few different places tonight. Jesus says, Search the scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. In this passage of Scripture, we find those coming to Jesus trying to trap him. And Jesus says, search the Scriptures, because it's there you'll find me. He told them many times they didn't know their Bibles. Jesus, however, knew his Bible he knew his Bible backward and forward because he was the author of it. And if an author doesn't know his own book, he'd be in pretty bad shape. But Jesus said, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So Jesus used the scriptures to settle questions about life. Jesus said, if you want to find an answer to eternal life, search the scriptures. You want to find an answer as to the meaning of life, search the scriptures. So he acknowledges the authority of scripture by telling them, if you search the scriptures, he said, you're going to find me. Go to Matthew chapter number four with me. We are in Matthew five, 
Let's go back to Matthew 4. One of the phrases Jesus would use is search the scriptures. Another one is it is written. Many times when Jesus was teaching a lesson, he would use the phrase, it is written. Why would Jesus refer to scripture when he was the son of God himself? Why wouldn't he just say, I said it? Because he's acknowledging the authority of scripture. Because he is the author. He is one with the scripture. And you and I today, 2,000 years later, we have the same authority that Jesus used in his discourses and in his conversations and in his teaching and in his practice. The same authority is the same that you and I have. It is written. Jesus is pointing to the fact that there is something that is written that is authoritative. He believed in the authority of the word of God, so he'd use this term. Now in Matthew 4, when the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus said to the devil three times, it is written. And he referred the devil, Satan, to Deuteronomy. In Matthew chapter number four, then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Verse number one, verse number two. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward in hunger, hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he, Jesus answered and said, it is written. Now we're going to come back to this later. If you want to mark this place. Again, Matthew 5 is where our text was, but we're going to come back to Matthew 4. I just wanted to point out this phrase here, it is written. In Matthew 11 and verse 10, he uses the same phrase to refer to Scripture as authority. So Jesus is affirming the authority of Scripture by referring people back to Scripture. And when he does that, he's saying to them in Matthew 11, there he's talking about John the Baptist. Matthew 11 and verse 10, he says, For this is he, John the Baptist, of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. So he's referring to a written passage of Scripture found in the book of Isaiah. He interprets the Scripture in verse number 11 of Matthew chapter 11, saying, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of woman, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Now, how do I know that the Bible is the word of God? One reason is because Jesus is placing great authority on the written word of God. When they confronted Jesus and they said, why are you doing this? Why are you driving these money changers out of the temple whenever he was cleansing the temple? He responded in Matthew 21 verse 13. Another place where you'll find that phrase. Jesus said unto them, it is written. 
what it was written. My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And so as the Lord is overturning tables and benches in the outer court of the Gentiles, he's quoting at least two Old Testament verses. Isaiah 56 and verse 7, Jeremiah 7 and verse 11. What is he doing? He's acknowledging the authority of the scripture. He's answering, here's why I'm doing what I'm doing, because it's written. He didn't just say, because I'm Jesus, I can do whatever I want to do. I get a pass. I, I, I created you. I can do anything I want to do. No, he's directing their mind, their heart. He's directing their attention to the authority in the word of God. You see, if we don't understand that, I don't think we're going to understand John 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the word and referring to Jesus Christ because Jesus is the living word and he's putting authority. He's acknowledging rather the authority of the written word. These are just a few examples of how Jesus believed in his Bible. He believed in his Bible so much that when he did something, he referred to the authority of Scripture. Now there's the third phrase. Remember the third one? He would say, have ye not read? Have ye not read? In Mark chapter 12 and verse 10, I'm turn over to there and we'll see this one. Mark chapter 12 and verse 10. Sometimes we uh, make it so convenient for you that you don't have to turn. We put them on the screen or we stay in one place and we get to where it's, it's, um, it makes you uncomfortable having to turn. You've got to work at it. Hey, but just, just be glad we don't have scrolls today. And you'd have to be rolling out the scroll across your pew and, and um, that'd be really quite, quite a challenge there and and um, someone would say, which scroll did he say? And oh boy, that'd be rough, wouldn't it? Mark 12 and verse 10. Notice what he says. And he says, and have ye not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. Then he goes on to say, this was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. It's as if Jesus is saying, don't you know your Bible? Have ye not read, he used this term when he confronted people. Haven't you read your Bible? Just imagine he as, uh, and his disciples are with him. And his disciples are there and he has people around him. And he just told a parable and it's what, it's what's happening here. And the people are scratching their heads about what does this parable mean? And Jesus says, have you not read the scripture? Have you not read your Bible? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. He's referring to Psalm 118 verse 22. So Jesus would not have pointed people to the scripture had he not believed in the authority of the scripture. Notice in Mark 12 and verse 26. Going back to, um, go back to verse 23, in the resurrection, therefore when they shall rise, whose wife shall be of them? For the seven had her to wife. And so this would be the Sadducees and the Sadducees um, 
uh, here. They didn't believe in the resurrection period. And the Pharisees, however, came to Jesus and, and they're talking about a woman who uh, was married seven times because of all her husbands had died. And so they're asking about this matter of the resurrection and, and um, the, the Sadducees um, are asking, who, who's she going to be married to? And Jesus says in verse 24, Do ye not therefore err because ye know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God? For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. And as touching the dead, that they rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spoke unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. And so again, remember the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection period. So they're just simply saying, this woman didn't do anything wrong. She just had some bad luck with these husbands. And, and Jesus is saying, you Sadducees, don't you know the word of God? Don't you know the power of God? And he's using the tense of the verb to be in the present active tense. And he said, he's not the God of the dead, but God is the God of the living. You do err greatly. He's confirming that people live beyond the grave because when God spoke to Moses, he is saying, God said, I'm the God of Abraham. I'm not the, I'm not, it's not that I was the God. I am the God. I am the God. I, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face and he was afraid to look upon God. He's quoting from Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6. Again, he's saying God's not referring to past tense. Abraham's been dead hundreds of years at the time of Moses. Isaac has been dead hundreds of years at the time of Moses. Jacob has been dead hundreds of years at the time of Moses. But God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. In other words, they're still alive. Even though they've died physically, they're still alive. I am their God. So he's saying to the Sadducees who don't believe in life after death, read your Bible. For there you'll know something about the resurrection of the dead. Read your Bible. For he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Hey, that's worth coming to church for just hearing that. So Jesus acknowledges the authority of Scripture. How? By referring to them to settle the questions of life. I want you to see another aspect of this authority. Jesus acknowledges the authority of Scripture, listen, by using Scripture as a weapon in spiritual warfare. He acknowledged the authority of Scripture, not just by referring people to the authority. That's what makes us Baptists. We're Baptists because our faith and practice is based upon the Bible. We, 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 were, we are Christians by conversion. We're Baptists by conviction. Why am I a Baptist? Because that's what the Bible teaches. Yeah, no one ever became 
a Presbyterian or a Lutheran or a Methodist by reading the Bible. No, that's not, if, if they would have continued to read the Bible, it would have taken them into the Bible. And the Bible, is that where you find Jesus? And what was Jesus? Jesus was one that was baptized by John the Baptist. Yeah. And so Jesus also acknowledged the authority of Scripture by using Scripture as a weapon in spiritual warfare. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 4. This is practical and every one of us need this. We mentioned the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Do you think you might face some temptation this week? If Jesus did, why would we be exempt? Jesus is battling Satan and he did it by using, Jesus did it by using the word of God. Mentioned before Jesus answered Satan three times, it is written. And what Jesus is doing is he's, he's using the scripture. Satan was using scripture as well, but he was misusing scripture. Jesus is using scripture, but he's quoting scripture correctly. Now don't forget, don't misunderstand what's happening. In Matthew 4, the Bible says in verse 1, then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. There's an awful lot in that verse. We ought to try to at least, if we can't wrap our brains around it, we ought to at least let our brains be saturated with what's happening. It says then. Why then? Because we understand that this is coming on the heels of something that's significant. In chapter number 3 and verse 16, Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. Verse 17, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And here you find the, the accommodation. Here you find the, the accolades from his Father. I'm well pleased in my Son. And here is Jesus Christ who's done no wrong. He's had no wrong motive. He's never committed a sin. He's never transgressed. He's never failed to do what was asked or required of him. And here he is. He is being uh, uh, baptized and, and here he is experiencing the, the well done from his father then. Then the Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness to do battle with Satan. It wasn't just after coming off of a mountaintop, but it was also after going through 40 days of fasting. 40 days, no food, no drink. And when the tempter, verse 3, came to him and said, If Thou be the Son of God, command that these stones may be made bread. If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. I'm not going to exhaust this. I do want us to see it because I believe every one of us 
will benefit from this and need this. Satan assumed, and by the way, three different times, and if you have red letters in your Bible referring to the words that Jesus spoke, you'll see three times that Jesus is speaking. Verse 4, verse 7, and verse 10. And that is Jesus' response to three attacks of Satan. The first one, this first one, when Satan in verse 3 says, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. This first test, it pertains to the matter of his sonship. Satan assumed that if Jesus were the Son, perhaps he could be persuaded to act independent of his Father. You know what Satan's subtle test to Jesus was, as well as to you? It's to act independent of the Father. For since he is the Son of God, does he have power to turn the stones all around him into bread? Yes or no? Well, did he take five loaves and two fishes and multiply them? Yes, but why was it that he could not do this? Because it wasn't the will of his father. So why would you and I do something contrary to the will of our father? The father's will, listen, the father's will for Jesus was for him to be hungry, perhaps hungrier than any of us in this room has ever been. It was the Father's will for him to be hungry in the desert without food. But to submit to Satan's suggestion and satisfy his hunger would have been contrary to God's will. So Jesus in verse 4, what does he do? He resorts to the authority of Scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. In fact, the most quoted book of Jesus and Jesus' Teaching and preaching was the book of Deuteronomy. Keep that in mind when you read through Deuteronomy. He says in Deuteronomy, and he quotes Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And Jesus declares that man does not live on bread alone, but man must have, must have every word of God. It's better to obey God's word than to satisfy your human desire every single day. The fact that Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy showed that he recognized the inerrant authority of that book. And by the way, I think there's significance to Jesus quoting Deuteronomy because it's one of those books that, that critics, often scholastic critics, would, would try to use to, to undermine the veracity and the authority of the Old Testament. So Jesus said, I'll show them. I'll quote it more than any other book because it is the Word of God. Go to the second temptation. In verse number 6, verse 5, The devil takes Jesus up into the holy city, setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written. You see the devil using same verbiage, same terminology. I think I've met people like that on social media. The devil says, it is written, 
He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. The second test by Satan, it appealed to personal display or popularity. Has he ever done that with you? You know, you, you, you need some recognition. You, 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 need to, you need to make sure that people see what you're worth. What did Jesus do? Verse 7, it is written again. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Here he is quoting Deuteronomy 6 and verse 16. He's using scripture to fight the devil's misuse of scripture. And in so doing, this is how he's resisting temptation. If Jesus resisted temptation by leaning upon the authority of Scripture, even though there might be a temptation to the appeal of personal display and personal popularity, and if Jesus resorted to the authority of Scripture, how much more should you and I wage spiritual warfare today the exact same way? You remember when we went through the, the journey on spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6 and verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians 6, 13, take unto you the whole armor of God. In verse 17 of Ephesians 6, one of the armor pieces is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we're to fight the devil with the sword of the spirit. Is that an offensive weapon or a defensive weapon? Offensive weapon coupled with another offensive weapon, which is prayer. The others are defensive weapons. Helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the gospel of peace, girdle of truth. But our offensive weapons are the word of God and prayer dependence upon God. So Jesus is waging warfare. Look at the third final test in verse number eight and again. The devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Hmm. What's Satan testing now? Satan's final test, it related to God's plan for Jesus. It was and is God's design that Jesus Christ ruled the world. And so Satan's final test is that I can give this to you. How many have circumvented the will of God because you've heard, I ought to be happy. God wants me to be happy. This would make me so happy. I mean, is it a sin to be happy? And Satan is tempting. If Satan's going to go after Jesus, why wouldn't he go after you when you don't know your Bible? He's going after the one who wrote the Bible. 
So what does Jesus say to him in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13 that Jesus quotes in verse number 10? He says, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Jesus uses the sword, and what he's doing is he's cutting Satan up with the sword, and what happens? Notice verse number 11, then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. These are just a few examples of Jesus fighting Satan and how Satan can be handled. Now, let me, let me just say this too. Jesus did not just defeat Satan with the word of God only. The Bible tells us in chapter 3 and in the beginning of chapter 4, he was led by the Spirit of God. He was full of the Holy Spirit, being fully God yet fully man. He was careful to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so if you just take the Bible and just word-filled, 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 and you fail to be spirit-filled, you're not going to be prepared to stand against the anti-Holy Spirit. You're not going to be able to handle when he says to you, here's what the Bible says. You're not going to be prepared and you're not going, if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be connected and, 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 and uh, um, controlled by the one who's our teacher and guide into all truth. It's not just being word filled. It's not just being the, the, the top Bible quizzer, did Jesus win over Satan? No, no, it was his surrender and submission to the person of the Holy Spirit and his dependence upon the authority of the truth of Scripture that allowed him to overcome the temptation of Satan. And that's the only way you and I are going to find victory over Satan. When Satan comes against us and lies, he says, you're no good. You're a failure. You're never going to make it. God doesn't love you. You'll never be good enough. But God's word is available to us. And you ought to have the, the ammunition of Romans chapter number 8. We are more than conquerors in Jesus. We'll never be separated from him. God so loved the world. And we can go to these places and we can say, it is written. And in the, in, the, in the course of doing so, we can be careful to remain sensitive and surrendered and submissive to the Holy Spirit of the living God. If not, he'll appeal to your area of vulnerability. He'll appeal to your area of desire. He'll appeal to your area of need. And you'll fail to find God. And instead of the devil leaving you, man, he's just going to camp out because you left the light on for him. We use the shield of faith as a defensive weapon to catch the fiery darts of the wicked one, but we use the sword of the Spirit as an offensive weapon. So Jesus acknowledges the authority of Scripture. How? By using Scripture. And he shows us how to wage spiritual warfare. Then, let me give you this other thought here under this, this second thing. How Jesus acknowledges the authority of Scripture. He does it by assigning Scripture its rightful, biblical 
authorship. He does it by assigning it its rightful biblical authorship. Now, this may not be a big deal to you. It may not light your fire. But as you read the Bible, as you read the words of Jesus, here's what you're going to find Jesus doing. He's assigning the book of Genesis, for example, to its human writer, Moses. We read Mark 12, verse 26 earlier, where Jesus said he referred to Moses being spoken to by God out of the burning bush. That's significant because there are people today in our liberal institutions that question whether or not Moses wrote those. And Jesus is telling us who it was. Matthew chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. He refers to the book of Genesis being written by Moses. Again, why is that important? Because liberal scholars would tell you that the book of Genesis was not written until after the Jews came back from captivity in Babylon about the fourth century before Jesus Christ. They say that the first five books of the Bible were not written until many, many thousands of years after Moses. Years afterward, they were written by scribes who took stories from here and there and put them all together. And then they wrote the first five books of the Bible. But Jesus is referring to those books of the Bible as the books of Moses. Jesus was the divine son of God and every word he spoke was the word of God without any error. Do you know that he talks about the Psalms and he ascribes them to the author David. He used the book of Jeremiah and he says that the book of Jeremiah was written by Jeremiah. He says the book of Isaiah was written by Isaiah. And many liberal biblical scholars will try to tell us there are two books of Isaiah or three books of Isaiah. And Jesus says there was a book, Isaiah, and he attributes it to Isaiah. Daniel, he says, was written by Daniel. So Jesus had no questions about the authority of Scripture. He acknowledged the authority of Scripture. He acknowledged the infallibility of Scripture. And what Jesus taught about the Bible is very important to you and me because if Jesus thinks and thought and taught and behaved and believed it, that his Bible was infallible, and if Jesus thought his Bible was authoritative, then you and I should as well. If Jesus trusted his Bible, then you can as well. If Jesus referred to his Bible, then you can refer to your Bible. It's important for Jesus, for us to know that Jesus knew his Bible. He studied his Bible. And if he knew his Bible and studied his Bible, how much more important is it for you and me to, to know our Bible, to study our Bible? One of the tragedies of our churches today is that we're Bible illiterate. And I'm glad that tide is changing here at Canaan Baptist Church with many who are endeavoring to get in the Bible. If Jesus used his Bible in spiritual warfare, how important is it for you and me to use our Bible in spiritual warfare? The truth that Jesus Christ is the theme of the entire Bible is captured in an anonymous poem. It's entitled, I Find My Lord in the Book. I find my Lord in the Bible wherever I chance to look. 
He is the theme of the Bible, the center and heart of the book. He is the rose of Sharon. He is the lily fair. Wherever I open my Bible, the Lord of the book is there. He, at the book's beginning, gave to the earth its form. He is the ark of shelter bearing the brunt of the storm, the burning bush of the desert, the budding of Aaron's rod. Wherever I look in the Bible, I see the Son of God. The ram upon Mount Moriah, the ladder from earth to sky, the scarlet cord in the window, and the serpent lifted high. The smitten rock in the desert, the shepherd with staff and crook. The face of my Lord I discover wherever I open the book. He is the seed of the woman, the Savior virgin born. He is the son of David whom men rejected with scorn. His garments of grace and of beauty, the stately Aaron deck. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Lord of eternal glory whom John the apostle saw. Light of the golden city, lamb without spot or flaw. Bridegroom coming at midnight for whom the virgins look. Wherever I open my Bible, I find my Lord in the book. Let's stand together, please.